Hello, welcome to the second episode of Future Voices. We are a podcast that's dedicated to talking to people who are revolutionizing their fields. My name is Ida Smiley. And I'm Rachel Adams. So Rachel, I'm super excited for today's episode. Tell us what we've got coming up. So today we're talking about representation in STEM, or science, technology, engineering, and math. I talked to Eamon Amir, and she's written a book for kids aged 7 to 12 to address a phenomenon called the leaky pipeline. This is where girls are streamed out of those courses from a young age. The book is called Our Stories in STEM, and it's a collection of stories all about diverse women working in STEM fields today. It's illustrated by all Canadian artists and is all about representing girls from all backgrounds. I talked to Eamon about her journey to write the book, her experience as an immigrant in the Canadian school system, and a lot more. Wow, this sounds very interesting. I'm very excited. I love this topic because I'd never pictured STEM or trades as a career option for me because I failed math every year in school and I had to go to summer school and I kind of just accepted that maybe it was something I'm not good at. But now that I learn more, it's great to see that it's an option that really should be encouraged more for girls and not just boys. Yeah, I agree. I think like looking back on my experience in school, you don't notice it at the time and you just think like, oh, I did poorly on this test or that test or this kind of learning is just not for me. And Eamon's book and her research really gets into why women are just consistently streamed out of those fields. So you can pre-order the book and merch at ourstoriesin.com. And here's my interview with Eamon Amir. Um, so yeah, a little bit about myself. Um, I graduated from university a couple years ago from the University of Waterloo. And while I was part of the University of Waterloo, um, during my last term, I stayed at this incubator called Greenhouse. Um, it's a social impact incubator, which is associated with the university where you live in their campus. Um, and they kind of guide you through making an impact through solving a problem. So for me, because I'd done a couple of internships at tech companies before that, and I've been at like Microsoft and a few other tech places, um, I kind of identified the area of impact that I wanted to work in. And I like, you know, lived experiences and things like that. Um, So, you know, addressing the STEM gender gap was something that I wanted to talk about. So we talked through and went through all these workshops and things like that to see, well, how can you really make an impact? And there's so many different solutions that came out um, through that entire, and it was a four month incubator. But one of them was, you know, addressing those gender stereotypes at a very early age, um, through early childhood education, through providing role models, through providing um, diverse literature and media. Um, And because I love art and I love books, so that's kind of how my project, Our Stories in STEM came to be, which is, you know, creating children's literature featuring diverse role models and their stories through interesting art for young children. Um, And yeah, and I've been working on it for a couple of years now alongside my day job (laughs) in the tech industry. And, uh, and it's been fun. It's been kind of quite a journey kind of learning everything about the publishing industry, learning about children's illustrations, writing for children's books, everything alongside that publishing, self-publishing actually was a big learning curve. Um, even sort of typesetting a book. So yeah, it's been a huge journey. Um, we opened for pre-orders a couple months ago, um, and now I'm just working on finalizing the book and bringing it to the world. Yeah, it's fantastic. I've actually pre-ordered a copy. Oh no, yeah. that's awesome. 
So I'm super, I'm super excited to get it. Um, I think it's really important because like personally, I never really thought of myself as having a career in STEM and I don't really know when that started, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of people feel the same way and a lot of girls feel the same way. Yeah. And it, it kind of comes down to like when you were doing a lot of research, they found that there's so many factors that can affect it. There's so many areas and ways of sol- like solutions to address it. Um, and sometimes it's really that you don't need to even have a lot of women in STEM. It's more so just about introducing all the possibilities of things that a girl could do. Um, and maybe she can decide that, yeah, that's not for me. And that's totally fine too. So it's not about, you know, pushing people in a certain field. It's more so like, by the way, there's all these things you could do too, which you might not know about. Yeah, like this is open to you. Exactly. Yeah. So let's get kind of down to the problem itself. Um, I was reading some of your blogs on Medium and you were talking about the leaky pipeline throughout education and how as girls get older, fewer and fewer of them picture themselves in STEM fields. So could you maybe tell me a little about a little bit about what exactly contributes to that problem and about mm-hmm. the leaky pipeline? Yeah. So when we were doing a lot of research about it, they call it a leaky pipeline because as the pipeline's increasing, which is from kindergarten, elementary school, high school, university, um, you see more and more people drop out of like the traditional stream. So a traditional stream usually looks like you're doing your general, you know, math, science, geography, history, whatever courses early on in middle school. Then when it comes time to choose your high school courses, you take the university level courses or the college level courses. Um, And then based on what courses you choose in high school or which courses you're eligible for, um, you chose, you are then eligible for certain programs in university. So for me, this kind of became more of a personal story as well, because when I immigrated to Canada, I was used to a different mathematical system um, from my home country. So when I came here, I was recommended college level math, even though I was really good at math. Um, And then that then doing that I kind of streamed myself out of applying for chemistry biology and all these other programs that are kind of requirements for a lot of things that I wanted to learn so I wanted to go into environmental science and you know save the planet and all that stuff but I wasn't eligible for a lot of the programs that were offered because I didn't have the courses because early on in grade nine I had kind of you know stopped myself out so that kind of leaky pipeline is the same story for a lot of people which is that once you end up going through the pipeline, you kind of drop out of opportunities. Um, So research has shown that that really happens a lot within, um, so for younger kids, it happens for different reasons. So when you're younger, it's just not fun. Um, It doesn't seem like something that girls do. So they found research that girls as young as six think that they're just inherently bad at math. So they just don't do those types of things or those things are for boys. Um, And then as you get older, it becomes certain things like, so for um, the mid-range kids, which is middle school to early school, researchers found that it's more so about um, those things don't seem fun. Um, And then as you get a little older, they found research that it's more so that people can't see themselves succeeding in a career in that pathway. Um, So based on that, the solutions you create will be different for each age range. Um, And this is true across the board. I mean, this is, I'm just talking about STEM for women in this case and, you know, everything and like women of color and everything like that. But it's true also for men and different career paths for them. So, you know, things like nursing for men, like that's a very different um, field. So, yeah, I think in this specific 
case, that's how they address the leaky pipeline, which is that you kind of just got lost within the system. And the older ages, one part of the problem is you don't see yourself succeeding in those fields. Um, mm -hmm. Does that have to do with um, like being in a male dominated field? You see that just as too challenging or yeah. you don't want to be in a field maybe that's male dominated. Like how, mm -hmm. what, are, what are some of the problems that people see in those fields? Yeah, so I think for an older age, older age group, these are some of the things that came up. So one thing is that um, they found that women are a lot more likely to kind of accept defeat the first time it happens. So the first time you fail a test, you're going to think, okay, I'm just bad at this and you're going to stop. While men and boys are more likely to be like, okay, I just failed a test. That doesn't mean I'm bad at a thing. Then they'll keep doing it. So uh, some of it, it, it is nature as well. And we, whether that's conditioning or society, that's up for debate. Um, so that's one thing. So I think the first time you do face defeat, it's a lot harder, especially in an educational system or educational context. And that's something that came out in a lot of research that I was doing. So that's one thing. The other thing is yes, because it is male dominated environments and women generally do feel inherently unsafe or they're less likely to participate if they don't have other female representation within the room with them. So whether that's, you know, if you're like one of three girls in a room of like uh, 50 boys, you're way less likely to participate, raise your hand in class. And I'm sure that's, we're generalizing a lot, but that's just kind of scientific research. Um, and I'm sure there's anomalies and, you know, people whose personalities don't align with that. And that's perfectly normal, but, um, yeah, so that kind of is one uh, second thing, which is that um, when you're not feeling represented in a group, um, you don't perform well and you are much less likely to drop that class. <laughs> or sorry, much more likely to drop yeah. that class. Um, and I'm sure and that's so even more so for people of color and women of color when 100%. it's an even smaller percentage. Yeah, and I mean, what we're talking about right now in terms of the educational pipeline, a lot of these things don't even apply to women of color and immigrant students and things like that because that traditional, um, you know, pipeline of going to university and things like that, those are, that's a privilege at the end of the day. Um, a lot of students don't have that support structure, you know, going to school and having a guidance counselor tell you, hey, I'm going to pass your courses on and you can go to this university and like take these courses and all that stuff. It just doesn't exist for a lot of people. Could you tell me about your own personal experience going through school and having to face those challenges, especially you mentioned you um, did immigrate when you were younger. Um, what were the specific challenges you faced with the leaky pipeline? Yeah, for sure. So I came to Canada when I was in grade seven. So um, just at the tail end of middle school, going into high school. Um, when I went into high school, I didn't know anything about the system. So no one really tells you about the system within Canada. Um, you know, you have one elective that you take in grade nine, and that can be whatever you want. It doesn't have to matter. In grade 10, you should take prerequisites to things that you want to take in potentially in university, because if you don't take, you know, um, university level math now, you can't take it in grade 11 and 12 and so on. So I didn't know about any of that and there's no education around that for immigrants coming to Canada. Um, so, you know, I started doing badly at math. I didn't understand the system and no one told, and I didn't have support that a lot of other children have so in terms of Kumon or after school programs or tutoring. Um, uh, parents were pretty hands-off because they had all more employment issues to deal with after coming here. Um, so yeah, that was definitely a big learning curve for me. Um, based on that, I didn't, because I was so bad at math, um, I 
just assumed and also based on my grades that I probably wouldn't be great at bio, bio or chem or physics. So I just took like the basic math, uh, sorry, basic science. I didn't take any of them harder, harder sciences. I didn't take any of the harder subjects. Um, and then when it came time to choose university programs, I didn't have prerequisites for a lot of things. Um, so then I had to kind of just pick and choose based on what was available to me versus what I really actually wanted to study and what I could definitely do well at if I had, you know, put the effort in um, or I had the support to be able to nurture those interests. So then I ended up going to York University in a program I didn't like. It was like business something. And then because then I became a lot more aware of kind of how the system works, what kind of what kind of prereqs you need, what kind of transfers and course credits, how that happens. Um, Then I transferred to University of Waterloo. Um, Not my first choice, but it was a program that was very similar to what I wanted to do a long time ago. Um, It was called Environment and Business. So you're studying a little bit more about the environmental side of things while also learning sort of business courses to learn more about sustainability. It kind of helped me (laughs) um, hit both marks of what I really care about versus making an impact. Um, And then through that, I kind of ventured out into the tech, tech industry and tech world, working in like marketing and program management and things like that. So kind of learned what I wanted to learn more about, ended up kind of stumbling into a career that I really like um, while, you know, making a bunch of mistakes along the way in terms of what programs to study and what courses to take and things like that. So um, I think the leaky pipeline definitely affected me, but I'm grateful to come out the other side. And I think I'm kind of in the early stages of a nice career that I'm building for myself. Um, but it wouldn't have happened if I didn't make a couple mistakes and learn about, oh, this is how the system works. And I feel like I wouldn't have had to make them if there was early intervention early on and I knew what happens in the world or I had good role models to look up to, um, whether that's at home or at work or outside. Um, So yeah, that's kind of my story a little bit. Yeah, I think it's like, um, because I did have the privilege of having all those resources that you were talking about and I still didn't really fully understand that Mm -hmm. not taking specific classes would close certain doors for me. Mm -hmm, Um, And I was always more interested in like social studies um, and history. I actually majored in history, um, but you don't really learn how, you know, um, connected every field is and how once you're interested in history, you can become interested in say economics or which you can't take the later classes without taking prerequisites or you know ecology um, I think many people of our generation are really interested in the environment and having some sort of ecological knowledge is really crucial for truly understanding these issues yeah no it's true um, but yeah exactly what you said like every all these fields are interconnected but you don't realize, and you have kind of a closed off worldview where I think you might've thought this as well. Like if you study history, you can become like a history teacher or something like that. And you just have very specific linear career paths when it's really not like that at the end of the day in terms of entering the workforce. Um, So, you know, learning things that you really care about is more important than learning things that will get you a good job at the end of the day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're going to find some career path that kind of relates to it um what you care about but if you are studying something that you don't even care about at all and that's way worse yeah and people our age jump around like Mm -hmm. in careers and jobs all the time Mm -hmm. I think more than any other generation ever has 
So tell me, maybe tell me a little bit about the process of coming up with the idea to write a children's book. Yeah, for sure. So um, before joining the incubator, I was just kind of completing my final year at university, um, just wanting to graduate with good grades and kind of call it a day, maybe find a good full-time job after. Um, but because of some experiences that I'd had, you know, through my internships at these tech companies, I could see, you know, I, I definitely felt like there's something I wanted to do about it. And I wanted to be part of something to, you know, make an impact in some way. And I feel like a lot of people, especially our age, um, they're looking for ways to kind of feel belonging or make an impact on the world, or you have this energy and drive to kind of do something. Um, so I had that energy as well, where I wanted to just do something, you know, feel like some sort of validation or some sort of belonging through action, um, whether that's community action or social action, or whether that's just upskilling and reinventing myself through learning something new. Um, I wanted to do something. So um, someone else who I really look up to, her name is Trishala, and she's actually featured in the book as well. Um, she had gone through the greenhouse program before. And I saw that, you know, she came out of it. She, while she was in the program, she created this whole like dialogue exchange, um, which was kind of like this program where people just all about communication and talking to each other in an honest, honest and open way. Um, so I really liked that. So I wanted to just be part of something. So uh, I applied for the incubator. I like, told them kind of what problems I wanted to work on. Um, and then through that process, we have a lot of workshops on things like creating problem statements and why you want to do something and going through like design iterative exercises on what solutions exist and going through research problems and things like that. Um, so while we're doing research, and I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, we found that there's many different age ranges that you can target. Um, and then all these organizations have already done a ton of research on area on how to kind of address the STEM gender gap. One of them was Microsoft as well, who I currently work for now. Um, so what they had found through these is like five or six ways to address the problem. Um, they found that one of them is through early childhood engagement through parents and teachers. One of them was um, giving them diverse and inclusive materials for toys at home or media that you're watching. The other one was providing role models um, and, a few, and a lot longer list, but these are kind of the three biggest ones for that early childhood range. And then the changes for early, for later stage when, you know, things like fair pay, um, you know, career growth incentives and learning opportunities or coding workshops and things like that. So um, it changes for each age range. But for me, I really wanted to target that range because they say that that's the earliest intervention point that you can target. And that's where the Lady Pipeline really starts. You know, like that's the beginning of the pipeline is that um, early childhood age of like six to 12. So anyways, targeting the problem at the solution or at the source was something I wanted to do. Um, and through these three things that they identified, parents and teachers, that's not really an industry I have a lot of insight in. So I didn't think I could make an impact there um, unless I really learned a lot and spent the years working with parents or children. I don't think that's something that I would be very successful in. Maybe someone else would be. So that one was out for me. The other one was um, creating engaging media and toys. Um, and I don't think that's something that worked either. But I um, like there's great other organizations doing that. Like there's Goldie Blocks. They make these toys for girls that teach them about um, curiosity and kind of like wiring and electrical and engineering kind of toys. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And then the third one was providing role models. And this one I definitely related to because it's something that helped me as well. I, there's a ton of role models that kind of guided me through life um, when I didn't have a direction or a mentor or like parental guidance in certain areas. Um, so providing role models to children's books, literature, it's been well-researched and it's very important. And there's other books out there as well. So that's why um, I knew that there is an impact that's created through the solution. However, um, the other children's books that exist, the, for example, there's this one amazing one by an author called Rachel Ignatowski. She made this anthology of women in science and it's beautiful, it's a huge book. And as you flip through it, it's like gorgeous illustrations and it's stories of um, incredible women in science that have done amazing stuff. However, a lot of them are not women of color um, and they're pioneers in their field. So they're women who have passed away, <laughs> they were alive in the 1800s. Um, and for children like myself growing up or other children, you can't really relate to them. Um, so then I came up with the idea of making something that's Canadian specific and it showcases women of color um, who are immigrants or refugees um, and non-traditional paths. Maybe they didn't go to university and they're kind of forging their own path. Um, so yeah, something, things along that nature. So um, it's still different from things that kind of exist already out in the world, but those things that exist have kind of proven the solution by the work that they've done. So in that way, I don't have to reinvent the wheel um, by making impact in my own way. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of in a long story short of the, how the children's book came to be. Um, and then purely selfishly, I love children's books. I love art and illustration and I love the cutesy, whimsical nature of it. And I just wanted to make something like that. Um, and everything else is just a plus on the other, like additional to that. Um, but yeah, I just like making things and I wanted mm -hmm. to make things. So I mean, <laughs> and it was probably really fun to go find all of the illustrators who um, contributed to the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It was super fun. I mean, so before, I think before the summer when I was like up until this summer, um, I was really, you know, finding illustrators that I loved and I wanted to do all female, like obviously including trans and non-binary um, folks as well, all female illustrators. But then um, the whole Black Lives Matter movement happened th throughout the summer. So um, people like there's a list floating around on the internet that was like all black illustrators and it's all around the like global illustrators. So I just sorted through Canadian ones and found so many new artists that I didn't know about. So for the rest, I think I only had about 15 left during the summer for the last 15 illustrations. So we managed to get folks from that list, which was super cool. So just finding, you know, people out in the world like that is so fun. Um, yeah, super cool artists. And they're all very different, like mm -hmm. very, very different art styles. So that was like something very interesting and awesome to me. So definitely very interesting. Yeah, I'm but excited yeah. to see it. Um, how did you go about finding the women in STEM that you were featuring? Yeah, a lot of it. Well, it's a little different. So for me, I wanted people across all of Canada within small localities. So I was really like, I started, my first step really was to reach out and make a list of, you know, women in STEM groups around university campuses and small groups like Waterloo Women in STEM and like Dalhousie Women in STEM groups and so forth. And they will have the finger on the pulse of what's happening in their localities, whether that's, um, you know, veterinarians that work in their area and they have like a little group or something. They have stories that come out of that area. Um, and then, so I was doing that, a lot of that, um, but I was finding it 
quite difficult to find women that didn't already have a platform. So um, one of the downsides was that some of those people are already, you know, well-known on LinkedIn and they're well-known as like a women in STEM advocate or an advocate for their field, like they're a pilot or something like that. Um, but then the good thing that came out of that and how I actually ended up getting most of my stories was that every time I would interview someone, I would ask them, ask for an introduction to three or more other women that they know in their networks. So that way they were able to sh share, you know, coworkers or their aunts and uncles or people they know in their communities. Um, and so through those, I got a lot more people that aren't as well known. So really it was women being advocates for other women, to be honest, at the end of the day. Um, Trishala again was one of the first few. She, I think she introduced me to like 20 or 30 women in her network who then introduced me to women in their networks and so forth. So it really grew from there. Um, and then reaching out to those smaller groups like indigenous women in STEM groups um, and asking them to sort of, you know, curate some stories or women that would be interested in being part of it because obviously I'm not just I don't want to just take people's stories <laughs> it's <laughs> like if they want them to want their journey or their um, struggles to be told at that level then they have to have buy-in for that right so yeah um so yeah it was definitely a big a long journey even having even interviewing these women I had to learn interviewing skills and how to talk about not dangerous topics, but how to talk about like sensitive, sensitive topics. Yeah, yeah sensitive topics um, in an empathetic way, being a good storyteller and making sure you're being respectful and how you talk to people. So I did do like a lot of courses in that. So yeah, it was definitely a long process, but finding the women was really just through other women being advocates really, which was... So it's yeah. like a community-driven story almost. Yeah, it, that's really it. I think it's just because it's the first one in Canada right now that's all Canadian in every aspect. I think people are really excited to see it come to life. And I don't think it'll be the first one, um, at least not by me. I mean, it's great. I hope more people make anthologies and books like this to bring other women's stories to life. So I think people are just excited to have one thing like that out in the world and then hopefully there'll be more. Right now, do you work in, so you work in the tech field, right? Yeah, so I currently work at Microsoft doing my okay. 9 to 5 life. <laughs> and how is it, how do you find working in the tech field just in general? Like, is it challenging to have to be maybe like one of, are you maybe one of the few women work who work there or one of the few people of color who work there? Um, how is yeah. that for you? So I think, well, I think in my team and in the experiences that I've been part of now after I've graduated, it's a lot more different now. So I definitely am in a much more diverse team. But I will say I think diversity affects in different ways where my personality is not traditionally suited to the company that I work for. So a lot of people who I use usually work with are kind of type A personalities who are extroverted and they have, um, you know, loud voices and they'll first one to raise their hand and participate in discussions and I'm not definitely not that person that doesn't mean I'm not confident in my ideas and what I have to contribute to the team I think it's more so that I'm just a little bit more quiet so I think being that was something that I had to learn more about which is that being okay with you know you don't have to match the room um so I think that was something that I definitely am experiencing and I kind of continue to experience now which is you know um, making sure that my voices and ideas are heard, even if I'm not the one who's like, ask me, you know? Uh, and then the other thing is that I'm usually also always the youngest person in the room. 
So that's something that I experienced a lot in the tech industry where people have a lot more experience. Um, they have, you know, they've been on so many different teams and worked on a bunch of different topics um, and often are, at least in my position now, we're at a similar hierarchy. Um, so I think unlearning that just because someone's a little older than me in a similar position that I am now, that doesn't mean that I'm below them in some way. I think everyone has something to contribute. So knowing that what I have to contribute is valid and that I am accomplished and I deserve to be there and I deserve to be in the room. I deserve my answers told. So um, yeah, that's something that I had to unlearn quite quickly. Um, so I, yeah, I'm still you know working on that right now. But yeah, that's a, it's a common thread throughout the tech industry where often, you know, people who are younger do feel like that. They, and especially as a woman and woman of color, I think I'm lucky that now I haven't had as many experiences. But when I was younger, I was often the only brown person in the room. And I mean, it's gonna, sorry, my cat's just crashing <laughs> at the door. Let me bring her in. Sorry. It's all right. My cat. Um, but yeah, I actually have a really funny story about being the only brown person. So I, when I was working at this company um, outside of Canada, I was honestly the only brown person in the entire company other than this one, one only brown woman. There was this one other brown man who I didn't really know, but it was so funny because um, I, I felt like I had to change myself to be more included in the group. So even though my name's Eamon, I was like, everyone just call me Amy. And I went by Amy for a long time. And then I returned there for an internship. And by that time, thankfully, I'd kind of unlearned that. And like, why did I even say that in the beginning? You know, why did I want to be called by something that was more acceptable for their language or their what they're used to? And even though it was a fairly multicultural um, city that I lived in, the company was not as um, multicultural or diverse. So Anyways, that was something that I was like, why did that argument in my head? It's like your own internalized issues that, you know, even if no one's ex outwardly, you know, discriminating, discriminating against you, because of who's in the room, you kind of internalize it. So that was very interesting. Now that I look back, like, when, why, you know? Yeah. But obviously, thankfully, I know better now. So when I went back there, um, to continue working there again. That's like, nobody call me Amy, please. Just <laughs> say my name as what it is. Um, and yeah, and the second time I went there, like a couple more, you know, brown folks had joined. So it was so funny because as soon as I came in, this one brown man who I'm still friends with now, he was like, oh my God, you're, are you Indian? Are you Pakistani? I'm like, yeah, I'm Pakistani. They're like, oh shit. So anyways, we became friends over that because there was no one else there. So um, yeah, you definitely feel a lot more belonging as you feel, see more familiar, even skin tones in the room. So yeah, that was a interesting couple experiences there. <laughs> yeah, and that's something you um, have written about on the website um, mm -hmm. and your posts as well as how to solve global issues, you need more than one type of voice. Yeah, so exactly. could you tell, could you talk a little bit about that and about like why it's so important to have a diversity of voices coming together to solve these global problems. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, I think it really depends. So, for example, I mean, there's so many examples out there in the world now how um, as more diverse voices came out into the world, they've realized problems that exist that we didn't even think about. And you're just kind of going along the status quo. For example, um, for like hundreds of years and the longest time, every time 
they do, you know, um, gynecology exams. So like frenulum and pap smears and tests like that. They were always using the same tool because yeah, it works. Did you change it? But then as more female gynecologists started coming into the field and they're thinking, well, why are we doing this? This is extremely invasive, um, painful to the patient. And then they kind of redesigned the tool. So I feel like stories like that are so much more common. And as they keep coming up where having more diverse voices in the room can say so much more. Um, and those voices can look like very different things. So I think it's not just a male and female that cis issue, but things like um, using the right pronouns for trans folks in the workplace and why is that important. Um, and then similarly, like ageism issues. So if you're a young person in the room, why does that matter? So I think when addressing global problems, you need to have, you know, voices that kind of address all the different types of people in the world. Um, I mean, there's even in the tech industry, which is what I'm part of now, we kind of see this come up all the time. For example, um, when artificial intelligence is super, you know, relevant and prevalent in society these days, um, the folks that are designing, you know, facial recognition and all these engineers in the room, when they're designing that um, and they're testing it on different data, they, I mean, I, I feel like you might've seen this already, but every time it would see kind of do a facial recognition of a person who was black it would associate it with a gorilla so you know it's yeah. horrible but that's yeah. because the people in the room are not designing it for everybody they just kind of chose generic subjects and because of their own unconscious biases they when they were doing their you know pool of folks to um, build that technology on there weren't a lot of faces in that pool so the technology didn't work for it so um anyways things like that so it's really important now that, especially now that we have so many more social issues coming up that folks are more aware of. I feel like these are all issues that existed, but um, now because of social media, even younger people now and Instagram and everything like that, we're so much more aware of social issues that are happening, like housing crisis and facial recognition technology being used against protesters and things like that. And now um, we're able to use our voice to kind of advocate for these issues. Um, but we can't do that if only one type of voice is advocating for it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so it's just, it's very interesting. And I think, I mean, another thing that just came to mind, for example, um, I don't know if you've heard, but so right now, these days, when all the Black Lives Matter protests are happening, um, it kind of came up that all these like celebrities and these white women were advocating for, um, oh, I can't, like, if they voiced a character in a cartoon or a Netflix show who was biracial or who was Black, they're like, oh, I'm going to step down from this role because I don't need to, you know, use my voice in this way and so forth, which is fine. That's great. But that's not really addressing the problem. So yeah, they're like, we're asking for, you know, mm. equal treatment by police and to not, not yep. be harassed or, like, killed by police anymore. And we're getting, mm. you know these things which are great but it's also like that's not what we're asking for and that's not like the most pressing issue to us exactly so if you're not including the voices of the people who are actually being affected by the issue um in that consideration then you're never going to actually solve the problem you're just kind of skirting around it really so um yeah i mean that's just a couple examples just off the top of my head but I'm sure there are so many out there and especially when it comes to like oh. health issues like there are all sorts of studies out there about how um 
when women describe pain, it's not believed as much, especially black women, their pain is not taken yeah. as seriously. And that can, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Now there, there's these people, these women out there living in pain because of a medical bias. And you can't address that unless you know about it. And you need a diverse amount of people in those fields to actually bring that up and change that culture. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you said it right, which is, it really is a change in culture. Um, but thankfully, honestly, nowadays with, because of, you know, the, like, what do they call it? Barriers to entry to get your voices heard through social media or through sources like podcasts and things like that, where people are bringing all these other voices on. We're getting so much more education and so much more awareness um, to different issues for different folks now, which is incredible. So I feel like it really is a movement and it is really a cultural change that we're kind of living in the middle of right now. Um, so yeah, it's an exciting and time. As much as like t Twitter and social media, it can be a very negative place. It's also given people <laughs> a lot of power who have not been given that sort of platform before. Mm -hmm, exactly. So, I mean, it definitely is kind of a double-edged sword, but if you use it right, it can be a very powerful tool for social change and kind of um, structural change, political change. So it's definitely a very powerful um, movement, at least. Yeah, well, hopefully we can change the culture, you know, in universities <laughs> yeah. and schools, because I know a lot of people who took, um, like women who took you know, sciences or maths, and um, they're all in male-dominated fields, and mm -hmm. it really does affect them, like, not having people with shared experiences go through that, and not having the professors understand it necessarily, so I think it's really important work that you're doing, and are you, have you thought at all about, you know, going back to school, like, kids going back to school, how that's going to affect young girls in the STEM fields? Yeah. For example, yeah. my, my mom is where she works in a school and they're doing like two classes for their particular school. They're going to be doing um, different like ten, four 10 week semesters and for each semester you get two classes. So you might have like math in the first semester and then you won't do it again until the next year. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. It's I mean, that's a really, it's, to, to be honest, so far all the interviews are done, no one's asked about like what will happen to kids going back to school. So it's awesome that you brought it up. Um, but to be honest, so a lot of other organizations, I think more so than our stories in STEM, they're doing great work and research in this area. So they're, I mean, people that I kind of chat with everything from, um, you know like, like these weekend programs like every Saturday morning you kind of log in and there's activities and fun ways to kind of keep you engaged and keep your mind still um, active in the fields of math or science. Um, I know Canadian Girls in STEM it's called the CAGIS. They have chapters across Canada. They're awesome at that where they have weekly STEM challenges and science and math um, and parents can get involved as well and those involve things like going outside and taking pictures of bugs so that's how they kind of keep the curiosity alive and keep you learning. It's all free as well um, and then there's groups like I know Into Space. They're awesome where they have these um, at kits, so you can just sign up for a kit and they'll drop it off for you or you can get it shipped to you. And they include everything about learning about space, have fun activities that you can do. Um, and there's so many 
other organizations that are making kits like those now that are kind of at home learning kits that kind of complement the virtual aspect because a lot of kids don't learn well in the virtual environment. The um, so science think, is like getting your hands dirty. Exactly. And I think that applies for math as well, learning about astron astronomy, um, kind of like charting the skies. Um, I think it's all very interrelated. So yeah, I think the future of learning really will change, especially during the COVID time, will be these additional resources that people have um, and the groups that are making them free and accessible for people. So um, it really will be good. I know for parents that are probably thinking like, oh no, my kid is not going to have any engagement with math for like a whole year because he or she is not learning that um, the whole like I don't know, one whole school year's worth. Um, it really will be these additional resources that kind of keep you engaged and keep you learning more, to be honest. And hopefully it'll be um, like more fun. Because I remember when I was in elementary school, I, it wasn't really fun. It was just learning from a textbook. Um, so hopefully these interactive things yeah. and going out and learning on your own and going in the garden and finding bugs and um, mm -hmm. all of that will actually make kids realize that you know science is real life and it's really cool actually exactly yeah and it keeps and things like that and i think i mean whenever you talk about stem people like only think science and math but really it includes technology and engineering and now steam is a big thing where you include the a for arts in there because for example when you are you know building things or learning about space and drawing out constellations it, there really is art involved in everything that comes along with stem mm -hmm. um, whether that's history learning about the history of certain things or the future prospects of technology and what you can do and learning about maybe making games on minecraft and things like that so it really is all inclusive um, and i know things like minecraft education is awesome where they teach you about making games and learning about coding at a really early age and it's all free and it's online as well and it complements the school education system. So if you're in grade four, they have a grade four learning level of making games. And that's inclusive for, you know, boys or girls or whatever um, gender the child is. So yeah, it's, I think it's going to be awesome of how many resources and there's so many organizations working in these fields. Um, it's a quick Google search to find people in your area that are working in this stuff. So it's exciting. It's an exciting time for sure. Mm -hmm. So where can people um, find our stories in STEM? Where can they go to either um, contribute to the Kickstarter or pre-order the book? Yeah, so um, we've currently closed the Kickstarter. We're not doing that anymore. So the best way to support would be to pre-order the book or the gift set. Um, all funds from the book and the gift set all just go back to other STEM and literacy organizations like the ones that I mentioned. Um, so, you know, things like funding these kits, um, your profits go towards that. So if you're interested in supporting us, um, you can pre-order the book on our website, ourstoriesinstem.com. Um, and if you want to follow along with what's happening throughout the pre-order process or learning more about the women who are featured or the artists that we featured, you can follow along on Instagram and Twitter. It's all under our stories in. Um, and so you can find us there. Thank you so much, Eamon, for sharing your story. And thank you, Rachel, for conducting the interview. 
I found it all very relatable. Um, I've also experienced definitely suppressing my cultural identity to fit into an environment where I didn't feel represented. Uh, generally, people pronounce my name Ada, and I have actually even used the name Amy every time that I'm in Starbucks just because I don't want to have to deal with the mispronunciation of my name over and over. Um, but Rachel, you mentioned in the episode not seeing a career in STEM as an option for you. Why do you think that was? I honestly don't know. Um, I don't know if it's like I had really encouraging parents, so it wasn't anything to do with that. And I don't remember my teachers ever being the problem. I think it was more the way those courses were taught. I was never good at memorization and I was always really creative and I preferred like, I preferred subjects where I could read like social studies and things like that. So I think just the way the courses were taught where you have to memorize something like I'm, I would always do really poorly on tests where I had to memorize. So maybe it was just the way it was taught. And I think just a more integrated approach might have made me see myself in those fields more. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And it's just great to see people like Eamon who are challenging these male-dominated fields and trying to make them more integrated. I also love that she was discussing how creative STEM can be for people from, for example, if you're coding or drawing constellations, there really is such an art to STEM. So if people are interested in buying the book or exploring the resources that Eamon talked about, where would they be able to find them? So the links to pre-order the book and some of those resources that she talked about are in the description. Our Stories in STEM is set to be released in early 2021. You can find all those details and more on the website, ourstoriesin.com, and you can keep up with the latest that Eamon is doing at her Instagram, ourstoriesin. You can find us streaming on Instagram and SoundCloud. And thanks for listening to Future Voices. We'll see you next time.